Buddy, how are you guys doing today? Man, you're good. All right, so we got to get this out of the way. Tim Abney, just stand up right now. Got my boy Tim Abney. He's a, he's a proud L.A. Rams now because they clearly their old city didn't want them. So they went to, they went to L.A. And I just want to make sure, you know, I love you, man. That's why I have you stand. That's why I have you stand. I gave him some trouble on Facebook this week. I told him that uh, Fullerton High School called. They want their JV team back. And... Um, But boy, if we lose today, I'm in big trouble with you, aren't I? All right. So, uh, thanks, Tim, for that. We got to just always pick up. Man, you're proud. You're loud. I love it. That's awesome. So, um, hey, before we get started, on the screen right there, it is the I Am RC, I Am Redemption Church. That is the big thing we're doing right now. We're going to continue to hear about that over the course of weeks. Um, But again, the, the thing that makes Redemption Church, Redemption Church, is the people, and again, as we've shared, one of the things we, we really love to leverage is that, that concept of community and involvement and, and people really doing the ministry. And so there's been some areas in the church that we are looking to have more people serving in. We really try to avoid the term volunteers and really use the term servants and serving because that's what it's about. We're really serving Jesus even more then we're serving the church or Sunday morning or children's or tech or whatever else. It's all about serving Jesus. And so with that in mind, on this card, there are some options both for kids ministry and worship ministry. Uh, as far as maybe uh, some place where you may feel inclined to serve. Maybe this is just something where you say, you know what? I have been a spectator for a long time and now I need to convert to being a contributor. And so this is a way that you could contribute. And so uh, this is in part why we're not sending the offering baskets down the aisle until after the service gives you a chance to have this in your lap staring you in the face all morning um so you can look at this and again we're just looking for a six-month commitment and then after that you may go man i love this want to keep doing it or you may say oh man life's changed i got to do something different whatever is cool uh, we just want to make sure that we are uh, again giving opportunities for everyone to be a part of what it means to be the church because that's really the, the the hub and the essence of what jesus established in the world he establishes church to serve one another and serve the world around us and we're looking at a lot of that and a new series that we've entitled The Church Is. And so we're going to be looking at really what the church is kind of from the biblical perspective and how that then plays out at Redemption Church, what that looks like for us. That is our goal over the next series of weeks. And this morning we're going to be in high, high orbit. We're going to be looking at Jesus. And so I want to start this morning just with a word of prayer. I want us to go to Jesus, who is our senior pastor, who is our chief shepherd. And we want to solicit him to bless us and speak to us and mobilize us. And so let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for the fact that you establish your church. It's your church. This is not my church. This is not any individual's church. This is your church. And then you have placed us in your church by your grace for your glory and for our good and so that we might bring your gospel to the world around us. And so I pray with all of that in mind that we will have just a a deepening passion to know you as our senior pastor, as the lover of our soul, as the one who has won us to himself through your sacrifice. I, I pray that that is never lost on us. I pray that we're not a place that you're the poster child and then we do all this stuff just with you over here in the corner, but rather that there would be a robust uh, passion for you, a, a hunger to have you meet with us in this place in very real and powerful ways. And, 
And so I pray that you continue to coach us to that and draw us more deeply into you. And so I pray today as we look at you, as you relate to your church, that you will guide us, inspire us, challenge us, confront us. Uh, There may be some repenting for us to do at times. There may be just some celebration for us to commence with at times. I pray in all of it, though, you are the central theme of our heart and our message. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you in your good name. Amen. So I have uh, been rolling around in the church for a very long time, uh, at least as that is relative. So uh, when I was uh, 19 years old, uh, that was roughly when I started to get a sense of maybe I'm supposed to do something with ministry. I had come to Christ through a youth ministry, uh, a man that just really transformed my life. Jim Harper took ownership of me. He loved me when I was stupid. He loved me when I was sinful. Um, you know, I started going to youth group, and I was kind of the class clown then brought into youth group, which may be the youth group clown. And, and he would preach, and I would heckle because I thought it was funny and everything else. And he still just loved me through that, even though he would also say, if you keep doing that, you can't come to youth group, but I'll go take you out for coffee sometime. Um, and, and, and so, man, he just kind of loved me into the kingdom. And so it was awesome for that because I didn't exactly come out of a Christian home, right? So this is in part why I love youth ministry because that is where I came to know Christ in a very personal way. So uh, anyway, did that through high school and everything else. And then as time went on, um, you know, my, my youth pastor moved to Spokane, Washington. And uh, as things kind of started to mature within my heart and mind, and I started to think I was maybe meant to pull the trigger on pursuing ministry, uh, my wife and I moved to Spokane, sight unseen, right? We'd seen one postcard, and I want to let you know that postcard's a lie, right? So... It was like they picked the best angle, best color, best everything, and said, this is Spokane. And we're like, this is awesome. Let's just go. It's going to be fantastic because it's not Arizona because that's where we grew up and we were sick of Arizona. So, uh, yeah. And so we, we went to Spokane and love my peeps in Spokane, but not the prettiest place always. So, yeah. and, and so, uh, but we went and we thought we were just going to be there for a short time. And I was going to intern to be a youth pastor for the rest of my life. That was my goal. And, and if people would have said to me, you're going to end up being a lead teaching pastor uh, in a church, I would have said, no, I mean, that's the armpit of ministry. There's no way I want to do that. That is unappealing to me. Now, at that point in my life, I was not uh, terribly academically motivated. I wasn't uh, the guy that was cracking commentaries and theology books. That wasn't my thing. I was just like, I'm going to hang out with kids forever, and we're going to have a blast. We're going to do crowd breakers to the end of time. You know, we're going to have so much fun. And so I was involved in a youth ministry where I trained and eventually pastored um, that was very, very outreach-driven. I mean, just super outreach-driven. Uh, and and uh, what was amazing is I, I can say definitively that in my life, that was the time that I was a part of what I would call a micro-revival, right? I mean, we really saw a revival in that context. And so uh, when my mentor had come to that church, it was about 45 high school kids, and within three years, it was 450 high school kids, it was just incredible, just truly a revival. Like every week we'd see like eight, ten high school kids come to Christ. And so, I mean, it was just on fire. And we were plugging them into discipleship groups. And people were growing and being changed. And even from that core, there's a number of people that have gone out to be pastors and missionaries. I mean, it was really a true revival time. But in the context of that ministry, we leveraged a lot of different um, methodologies to be outreach oriented. So uh, we would use drama and we would use video and we would use music and lights and sound and everything you could muster we would do. And you got to remember, this was back in the day when you did video. The way you edited is you used two VHS cassette players. 
and you just kind of hit play and record, and then that's your editing between these two things. But we did that. We we're like all in on that. And, and, and for a while there, I was like, this is the way you do ministry. You do every bell, every whistle, every horse and pony show you can to reach people for Jesus. But then I started to uh, grow a little bit in my theology, and I started to read a little bit, and I kind of shot off in a direction where I, I started to become basically the quintessential legalist. And I started to look at the things that we would use for that ministry and started to criticize them. Why are we using video, man? That's so earthly. Why are we, why are we doing all this music? Why are we using secular songs at times? This is so worldly. And, and, and some of those things I would still to this day say, we probably did some things we shouldn't have done and there were some things that were truly worldly. But for me, the bigger problem was as I was growing in my theology... I was losing a sense of grace toward the ministry that we were engaged in. And so there was a rigidity where I'm like, holiness is unhappiness. That's what we need. So we need to be unhappy to be holy. And so everything there was too happy, too fun, too carefree, too silly. And so I was like, no, man, we just got to preach the Bible for three hours to high school students, you know. And we got to sing just the Psalms only, nothing else. And, and so I went down that road for a while of just theology teaching just hardcore man like all of that and not that that in and of itself was unhealthy but there was things in me that were unhealthy as it related to that and so i went down that road for a while uh and and, and then after a season and by then i became a lead pastor in the church and everything else and as i kind of processed through all of that more i'm like man i feel like we're just we're doing this for ourselves you know we're doing this unhappy holiness thing just because that, that's what makes us feel good in our holiness. Um, but it seems like we're not really trying to reach people like we should. We're not really impacting our world like we should. I remember sitting now with our elders one time and said, you know what, if we closed our church today, the city of Spokane wouldn't even notice it was gone. Does that alarm us? And we were like, meh, 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 meh. what are you going to teach next week? You know? And so... There, there was just like this thing in me where I'm like, man, I'm really burdened by this. And so what I found is then I kind of shot off in another trajectory of being a pastor, which was, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of us just being doing this unhappy, holy thing. We just need to go hardcore outreach. We need to go big or go home. We have to go seeker-sensitive. We have to go postmodern. We have to go emergent or emerging, depending on your clan, you know, like... We have to do that whole thing. So we got to go down that road of whatever it takes is what we're going to do to reach people. And so I, at that point, then said, I'm just going to embrace this model, asking the question, hey, lost world, what do we need to do or what do we need to change so that you will come into our church? And so it, that was the chase. And honestly, a lot of pastors end up on that chase. A lot of pastors end up there for two reasons. One is the pastors themselves put a lot of pressure on themselves to grow churches. They just put it on themselves like, hey man, that's a part of my mission and it's part of my calling and even some of my self-worth is wrapped up in do you have a growing church? In fact, one of the weirdest things is when pastors go off to conferences and they meet other pastors, the very first question is, hey, how big is your church? Hey, shut up. You know, so... Um, so we, even though we all complain, like, it's not about the numbers and we don't want to be measured by the numbers in the end, we start asking one another, how big's your church? And we measure by the numbers, right? And so um, there's that pressure. That pressure is also added by church search committees. 
when they're looking to hire a new pastor and their job description usually starts off with something like uh, looking for the man to take us to the next level, right? Which means the other guy didn't and that's why he's gone, right? And that's why we're looking for you, the next level guy, right? And so there's all that pressure. And so then as pastors, what we begin to do say, great, we got to see what works. And so you grab the Willow model and you look at Bill Hybels and you go, what was the Willow model? And they said, well, you got to figure out what people's felt needs are and meet those felt needs. Speak to those felt needs. We're like, all right, so we're looking for felt needs. Then after a while, felt needs wasn't so cool. So what do you do? You grab Saddleback and that's purpose-driven. So we need purpose-driven everything, purpose-driven life and purpose-driven church and purpose-driven diet. You know, like all that purpose. We've got to find purpose. Need a church of purpose, right? And then after that, that gets a little bit old. So then you got to roll into North Point, Andy Stanley, and you need to create a church that the unchurched love to attend. And so you're asking the question, well, what is it that the unchurched want so that they love to attend church? So then we go out into the world. We say, world, tell us what you want so we can do this at church. So you want to come to where we're at. So then they begin to roll out with all of their insights. And they go, well, what we want it to be casual. Okay, we can do casual but professional. Oh, okay, casual and professional. We want it to be authentic, just real, but we'll complain when it doesn't seem excellent. Okay, authentic, but excellent. We want it to have a family feel. We can do family feel, but we also want robust security protocols in place for children's ministry. All right, family, but security. All right, my home's full of security. Um, we want lots of options in the church. Lots of options. We want it to be a mall. Options, options, options. But we don't want you to ask for money. All right, options, but don't ask for money. We want it to be intellectual. We want it to be intellectual, but don't use those big theological words. Okay, intellectual, but not theological words. We want the pastors to be well-trained, well-equipped, well-educated, but then we want them just to be funny and give little simple anecdotal stories. Okay, educated, but... Uh... In other words, hold our attention, but just don't hold us accountable, right? And, and, and so um, this is the, this thing that we begin to gather all of that data then as pastors. This is what I went through a number of years ago. Gather all the information. What do they want? What's their felt need? What's their purpose that I can drive them toward? What is this thing that the unchurched are going to love about our church by changing our church so that unchurched people love it? And, and you go through all that and you go, okay, we're going to do this with the lights. We're going to do this with the sound. We're going to do this with the fog machine because everybody loves a fog machine, especially people live in a valley filled with fog. Um, <laughs> right? More fog and more cowbell too. All right, so, right? Why not go to town? <laughs> so you start looking for the right environment and the right tone and the right uh, models and the right symmetry and just looking at the options or whatever else. And, and, and I find in this, having gone through this journey and, and, and having been down these different roads in my past as a pastor and in reflection, it, it's, it, I find it interesting, and this is really going to, believe it or not, dovetail into what we're talking about today, um, I find it interesting how often the biggest concern is not what do you do to see an environment where Jesus is clearly felt and glorified. It's like every other thing matters almost more. Like, of course, we're doing it in his name. Like, everybody's going to say, we're doing this for Jesus. But, but I often wonder how much we're actually asking the question, what is it that Jesus prescribes for us to experience him in a powerful way in his church when it gathers? That's just not one of the biggest questions in the how to grow a church manual. 
There's all kinds of things about how you get them to see Jesus differently, how you introduce them to certain ideas. But there isn't this big driving push that says, all right, what people most need is God. So what do we do so that God shows up big amongst his people? It's just not the question that gets asked in those books. It's not the thing we we try to, to answer. And so what we end up designing is very horizontal churches. We ask very horizontal questions, we solve horizontal problems, and we kind of attack things from a horizontal perspective. Now, I'm not trying to say, therefore, that all of the tools and things that we may use are bad. My point is, when we start looking at those things and saying, they're more important, they're more mission critical, or the way we're going to grow, get big, do our thing, is because of those things, more than uh, man. We need to press in to see Jesus show up big in his church and amongst his people. I, I, that's the bigger thing to me. That should be the bigger agenda and the bigger goal. Instead of figuring out, hey, how do we create environments at church that are natural for people? We should want to see God create environments that are supernatural for people. Right? Because that's what this gig is all about. This gig is not about a bunch of people coming together for an ideology and some morality, and then going and doing life. I mean, this is much bigger. This is about Jesus. The church is about Jesus. It's designed by Jesus. It's won by Jesus. It's paid for by Jesus. This is why we make such a big deal about Jesus here. We don't want this to be a club. We don't want this simply to be an ideology that we all embrace. We want this to be a place of transformation, not just technique. A place of expectation, a place of uh, engagement with Christ, of experience with what he has offered to us. In fact, if I go a step further, um, I I would just, I'm kind of spitballing here, something that I've talked with various staff members about now for kind of a couple of years. but, But if I was to speculate, I would say as time rolls on in our current culture, um, The idea of technique is the key to growing a church. That concept, I believe, is not only built on sand, but it's going to lose traction as time goes on. And and here's why. So if you go back to like 1950, all the way through 2000, um, it was socially advantageous for you to attend church. Right? I mean, it helped in the community. It helped with friendships. Nobody looked at you and went, whoa, you go to church, you're a freak. It was like, no, you're a freak if you didn't in some ways. And then around 2000, it sort of shifted to where it was kind of socially neutral. Eh, you can have it. Eh, you don't have to have it. It doesn't matter. Not that big a deal. But then we rolled into like 2010, and it became socially disadvantaging for you to be a part of a church. Because the culture shifted, the climate changed, opinions on evangelical Christians became suddenly more abruptly negative. Now it was harder just to kind of be in the culture without standing out in, in a negative way. And, and so from that, I look at that and I go, then what's going to motivate people to go to church if it isn't about Jesus? I mean, why? What's the benefit? Right? I mean, it used to be you could say, well, I got some good morality lessons and I had good relationships, but now it's going to cost something. Now people are going to look at us as Christians a little bit differently because we loyally and faithfully go to the church. This is why, just last year alone, two million people who claim Christ stopped going to church. It was just, eh, we call them the nuns, right? Not the nuns like Catholic. 
right? But just none. They, they're not ascribing to anything, or they're just unchurched. They're not even necessarily saying, I don't believe in Jesus. They're saying, I just don't see the need for the church, the purpose for the church. I don't know why I would actually be a part of a church. And here's why. If you want to go to church for advice, you could probably get better advice from Dr. Phil, right? In, in the sense of, if you're just going for the advice quotient, and you're not going for the Jesus part as much, why go to church? Man, you can get advice on a podcast, you can get it from a book, you can get it on the internet, you can get it, you can turn on your radio, there's advice. You can get advice, and it's free a lot of it. You go, well, I, I want the lights and the sounds. Well, you can get that at a concert better than you can get it at a church. As for kids stuff, man, church offers kids stuff, community offers kids stuff, there's so many outlets. Chuck E. Cheese offers kids stuff, man, right? Chuck E. Cheese, love it, right? So there's all of these things. So it's kind of like, why would you continue to go to church if it isn't about Jesus? If all the gimmicks are just the gimmicks and it's not about him, in time I see people going, you know what? Uh, let me get this straight. So I can have my Sunday and keep my money? You know, if it's just about those gimmicks, then those gimmicks aren't going to hold up in a culture that says, uh, now it costs us something, right? That, that's, that's the heart behind this whole deal. But that's what the horizontal emphasis gets us, right? It, it gets us this, just this, hey, what works here? What do people want here? And in time, it's going to be like, well, uh, I, I can go get this anywhere. The church isn't that unique if it's just about the stuff. But if Jesus is the draw, if Jesus is the transformational component, if Jesus is the transcendent personality of the church, that changes everything. Because what I believe is what people really want when they go to church. If they're kind of playing around with, oh, I'm thinking about church, I don't know. What they're really wanting is to connect with something bigger than themselves. And it's not just people. When a seeker begins to truly seek. They're looking for God to intervene. They're looking for God to do something. And so I believe what's imperative on the church is not saying, how can we meet all of their earthly need, but more importantly, how can we introduce them to their heavenly father? How can we in introduce them to Jesus who's come to rescue them? I mean, that's the heart of the church. And so when we say it's all about Jesus, or we say Jesus is our senior pastor, we're not just saying that to honor him. We're saying that because it's an invitation for him to rule and reign over this place. For him to touch our lives and move amongst us in such a way that we are truly transformed. And see, that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of anyway. I don't want to be a part of a church where everybody's just clever enough and talented enough to make something, quote, grow. I want to be a part of a church where we all know any kind of growth, any kind of passion, any kind of enthusiasm. It's driven because Jesus is truly among his people. It's, it's, a, it's a felt thing. He's known and he's felt amongst his people. And we go, man, that's what's happening here. That is to be the cry of our heart and the cry of our soul, right? See, that's a vertical type of church. It's just focused on what he wants to do, what he wants to do in and through us. So we're constantly going to him and he's constantly pouring into us. Now don't get me wrong, horizontal is popular. I get it. Horizontal is very popular, but I want to be a part of something that is powerful, not just simply popular. Now maybe that sounds a little bit selfish of me, 
you know, I want to be a part of. But, you know, you're you're getting my own, um, just my own bent. You know, I love this book. I love theology. I love church history. I love that stuff. But more importantly and more to the point, I love Jesus and I want to know him more. I don't want it just to be code, creed, Christendom, data. I want it to be, again, experience. I want Jesus to be thrust upon my life in such a way that, that I, I, I'm, I'm without a shadow of a doubt of his power and his presence. That's, that's what I want. I believe that's what he wants for me. And, and I believe, in turn, it's what he wants for his church, right? To be desperate for him. To ache for him to be amongst his people. I think about this in the book of Exodus. Um, in Exodus 32, it's the scene of the golden calf, right? Where uh, everything just kind of comes apart. Right? Israel being Israel, which is, they're awesome at sin, um, decides to make this idol and they're worshiping while Moses is upon the mountain and God's like all right uh we're gonna go down we're gonna deal with this and so they do and a lot of people die and then Moses goes back up onto the mountain and 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 they're kind of debriefing a little bit in that scene and it's all about okay the children of Israel they're back on track we're taking them to the promised land and so Moses begins to um appeal to God And so it says in verse 12, one day Moses said to the Lord, by the way, I'm reading this from the New Living Translation, only this section here, because man, I think the New Living captures the tone of what's going on in Exodus 34, Exodus 33 rather, in a very clear way. So it says, one day Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You've told me I know you by name, I look favorably on you. If it is true then, look favorably not only on me to know your ways and help me understand you more fully what you're doing so I can continue to enjoy you more. Let me enjoy your favor. I want to have more part of you. Tell me more. But then he adds this. And remember that this nation is your very own people. Right? So in the previous chapter, the nation was foolish, stupid, sinful, and idolatrous. And so now Moses is like, uh, I know you killed some of them, but please don't forget that you're their God and they're your people. I get that you dig me and I dig you, God. But don't forget about your people too. And so in verse 14, it says, Then the Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest and everything will be fine for you. Now, this is where Moses begins to sweat. Right? I mean, he's happy. Like, all right. I'm good with God, right? BFF here, right? And in fact, he even says that. Like, God called Moses his friend, so they're tight. God's like, I'm with you, man. I'm for you. I'm traveling with you. But then Moses says this, and this is, man, I think so pertinent to the morning. It says in verse 15, then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, then please don't make us leave this place. Right? So so here's the, the thing. Moses is like, all right, uh, God, you're telling us to go to the promised land. You're saying you're going to be with me. But if you're not with us, if you're not with all of us, if you're not felt among us, if you are not celebrated among us, if your glory is not displayed in the presence of all of us, then he's like, man, don't even take us there. We don't want to go and just be another religion amongst religions with their codes and creeds and no power, no transformation, no presence. He says, if that's what it's going to be, God, if you're not going to be with us, please don't even let us pull up stakes. We want to just stay. 
Because there's something about the reality when we do things in the name of religion without God, it's just, it's just empty. It's empty. And see, Moses, he knows that we're the real encouragement, the real power, the real transformation is, is when God is with his people. He says, so look favorably, not only on me, but on your people. Don't, if you don't go with us, man, if your presence isn't always before us, man, we just, we don't want to go because we're not going to be any different than anybody else on earth, right? We'll be just like everybody else. This is why I'm saying as a church, what will make us different? What makes us different is that God is truly among his people. What makes us different is when God's glory and presence is, is palpable in his church. When people come, now nah, I know God is doing something with that. See, in part I say this because, again, as we rolled out last week, hey, man, we've got a building and we're going to put together this plan to, uh, over the course of the next few years, see that become our full Sunday morning suite. And we're calling it the Redemption Church Sanctuary because it's a sanctuary for God's word and God's gospel and where Christians can be equipped and everything else. But here's what I never want us to think. I never want us to think when we finally have our own building, man, that's when the chains are going to just off the chain, right? Like God's going to grow the thing crazy because we have a building. And I go, no, 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 it doesn't guarantee anything. Buildings don't do a thing. They, they just, they're, they're there. They don't make your ministry cooler and better and more blessable because you have a building. But when God is among his people, and people go, I know God is among his people, doesn't matter your space now i don't say that to disparage the idea of having us having a building i'm wanting us always to keep before us what the true demarcation of success will be success is not going to be whether we build it and if they come success is not going to be if we have every program we do everything slick success will be measured in a sense of faithfulness to longing for Jesus in such a way that he truly is sensed among his people. That, that, that will be the measure. That has to be the measure. When we talk about what the church is, we're saying the church is Christ's own personal possession and therefore he should be obviously upheld, obviously glorified, obviously felt among, among his people. And so, man, if you're not with us, don't even let us go. I feel Moses there. So then it says in verse 17, the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked for I look favorably on you and I know you by name. And then I love Moses' response. Then show me your glorious presence. That should be our battle cry. Show me your glorious presence. Not just, hey, fix my life. Give me some some ease or comfort or stability or security. No, show me your glory. Show me your presence. That is to be our song as a church. I see the same passion in Acts chapter 4. They'd just been arrested, stood before the religious authorities, uh, and, uh, you know, by God's grace, they're, they're let go. And as soon as they're let go and they're told, don't you ever preach in the name of Jesus again, they instantly begin to pray. 
And it says in verse 29 of Acts chapter 4, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal with signs and wonders and to perform many things in your name through your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered, it was shaken. right? And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with great boldness. See, that is to be the heart of every church that claims Christ. The heart of every church that claims Christ should be, Jesus, be with us. Jesus, do things through us. Give us the courage. Give us the boldness. Give us the conviction. Give us the passion to do this. I don't want us to become a place that says, do this, do this, do this. And we're not soliciting the power of Jesus to get things done. Right? It's Jesus, do this in us and through us and to us because this is why you came. This is his passion for his church to truly be the pastor of his church, to be the leader of his church, to be the mobilizer of his church. What helps me in this sometimes is to go back and to simply reflect on how loyal Jesus is to the task or the process, right? How committed he committed he was and is in seeking us as his own these will come as rapid fire but this is just showing how committed jesus was to seek us as his own galatians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 says grace to you and peace from god our father and lord jesus christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age he says man i gave myself for your sins so that i might deliver you not only that 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made, him who, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, you imagine that. Every single offense you and I have ever committed, every single offense, line item, things we know, things we don't know, things that we'll never realize, Jesus paid for all of those, and in turn said, now I'm going to give you my standing of righteousness. That's how committed he is to the project. First Peter chapter one, or chapter two, verse twenty-four says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so again, he directs us, he heals us, he transforms us, he delivers us. All those verses, that's what they're saying. This is how committed he is to us. Individually. He says, This is the investment I make. This is my deposit into you as one of my own. And then not only that, he makes a profound investment into his church. A personal, sacrificial, caring investment. Ephesians chapter 5. Familiar passage for husbands. But it says something about Jesus in this passage as well. It says, husbands... And notice uh, there's going to be bold letters up there. So bold words, you notice those. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's so committed to his church, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He says, man, in the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever uh, hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, cherishes it just as Christ does his church. Now, there's a great message for husbands there. 
but it's all mirroring and pairing the message that Christ has for his church. Right? He invests into every one of us as individuals by taking away our sins and rescuing us and delivering us and healing us and all of that. And he says, I'm going to take all of those individuals now and I'm going to coalesce them into my church. And as my church, then I'm going to care, nurture, impart, press in, do good to, deploy, call a holiness, all those things that we see in this passage. This is Jesus again making the investment into his church and he's making that investment so that then as the church, holy and dependent on him we can go out into our world and we can do what we're supposed to do there which is what jesus said which is i'm going to build my church and even the gates of hell itself will not prevail against the onslaught of my people making profound difference in my name for my glory in the world right so all of that comes together as the church this is why jesus again is not just the head that's true but it's much more intimate than just that It's not just, well, he's this figurehead, and we obey the figurehead. We do obey him, and he is the figurehead, but it's so much deeper. It's so much more in tune. It's so much more more intimate than just a system, right? He invested in us. He's investing in us so we can invest in one another, and we can invest in the world that is around us what that means for us is that as a church as the individuals of a church as we come together it's a reminder that uh, our strength is in the sum of our parts right we may all be individuals but we, we really need the church for our growth and the church for our strength jesus is just sovereignly organized that that's how the church works and so what we need is to realize that our strength is in the sum of our parts. Which then means, as individuals, we have to think in terms of, all right, so what do I do to faithfully grow in such a way that I can aid in the sum? Right? Because, again, you know, the the, the church is made up of individuals, but it's a collective body. And so we want to, I want to, be thinking, okay, if we want Jesus to be truly among us, we want God to be truly felt in this place, then I have a responsibility to that as an individual in my life. And then as I come in here to to see what's happening out here with Jesus in my life expressed in here in a collective way. So then the question becomes, what do I do out there? What do I do in the everyday? To to be the kind of person that, that dwells with God in such a way that when I come in here, then it's an expression of what he's doing in the everyday. Right? That's the question. I'm going to give you three things that I think are simple things that we are to do. To have this personal investment of pressing into Jesus that then means when we come together, we collectively press into him and he shows himself strong on our behalf. The first is that we are to establish our loyalty to him. Right? When we think about how we live our Christian faith, what we do in our Christian lives. That first thing is, man, we need to establish our loyalty. And this one, I, I will let you know, maybe a little bit of a challenge. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said something I think is, that is profound at a number of levels, and I won't be able to get into all of it now. But, but he says, starting in verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, nor where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he confronts something. Now the theme is money, but he's confronting an issue of heart. And he says, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Whatever you long for, whatever you wish for, whatever you trust in, whatever you believe it will make you happier if you have and sad if you don't, whatever that is, that's where your heart is. It gives us an exposure to our heart. And so he says, man, don't store up on earth, store up in heaven, because more deeply there is an issue of heart to be explored. Then he goes a step further. Says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now sometimes people go, man, it seems like Jesus just jumped subject. All right, treasure, heaven, eyes, and darkness. Now what do I do with that? But his context is, is still there. He's like, um, wh- wh- whatever you, you gaze upon wantingly is going to define you. Whatever you look at and say, that would fix everything, is going to define you. Whatever you most daydream about, whatever would solve all of the dilemmas of life, whatever you gaze on, that's going to define you. And so Jesus is giving us this loving warning, saying, basically, in the context, don't store up on earth, store up in heaven. But if you're looking at earth and you're looking at money and that's going to solve all of your problems, that's going to fix your kids and fix your marriage and fix your life and fix your health and fix your worries and fix your anxiety and fix everything, um, you're going to be gazing on something that's going to define you in a negative way. Why does it define negatively? He says in verse 24, because no one can serve two masters. Uh, We can't say, uh, Jesus, uh, money. Jesus, money, both. He says, no, no, no. You're either looking at me as your ultimate loyalty or you're looking at what money will give you, which is security and strength and all these things. So you have to decide which master has your, your loyalty. Because he says, you can't serve two. Either you will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now listen, Jesus doesn't need your cash. He doesn't have a wallet. All right, everybody pass the plate so I can get some spending cash in my Jesus wallet. That's not his thing. Like when we talk about giving, even as we're going to be talking about this building in the future and giving to that, um, this is really honestly less, sincerely less about, oh, we have to raise resources. This becomes opportunity. And it becomes an opportunity to say, uh, Jesus, you're first. Jesus, you have my loyalty. Jesus, you're big enough in my life that I'm okay. I'm good with. In fact, I'm excited to part with some of that which you've given to me because you gave it all to me anyway. So I part with some of it to you as an evidence and as a, an invitation to my life to say, you know what? Um, do something. That is great and grand because, again, I'm giving my life to you. I'm giving my stuff to you. I'm trusting you. You're, you're bigger than my resources. I'm more loyal to you than my resources. See, what I find in my own life, this is confession, right? There are times with money that I'm, I'm like, clinch it. Mine. Like, gullum with the ring. Precious right? 
my precious. And, and, and there was never, there was never joy there. There's never joy. And when I do that, I never have more. I really don't. I don't have more when I keep it. Right? When I release it, and I'm releasing it because I'm saying, Jesus, you're worth more than this. And, and I'm trusting you with my things. And this is a, just a tribute to how I love you. This is, this is an act of worship among many acts of worship. In that, there, there is always blessing behind that. Now, I'm not, not going to go all health, wealth, prosperity on you, but there's always a blessing of 20,000 fold in your mailbox next week. That's not what I mean. What, what I mean is, anytime we give in the name of Jesus, I've never met a person that gives in the name of Jesus and go, man, now I just feel dirty and awful. I just feel empty. Oh, man, I wish I'd put some fishing line on that. I could pull that back in. You know, like, I've never met that person. No, Jesus blesses in that. Because in part, what we know we're doing in that action is we're displaying our loyalty. I'm not, I'm not going to serve two masters because I can't. I have to decide. So Jesus, I serve you. So this is why I store up treasure in heaven. And that's the weird part. When we give, Jesus says, you're just storing it up in heaven. You're just advancing it ahead. You get it back. That's the weirdest part of all. He says, you get it back. It's like, I'm just borrowing it on earth and you get it in heaven, man. Why wouldn't you want to make that investment? It's guaranteed. It's better than a 401k. Right? But what it comes down to is loyalty. That's really what it is. More than anything else. More than anything. It's just about the loyalty factor. And so the first thing we want to do as individuals is establish our loyalty. Who is our master? Who is our master? The second thing we want to establish is our longing for him. First we establish our loyalty to him. And now we establish our longing for him. In Philippians chapter 3, one of my favorite passages. It wasn't too long ago we went through the book of Philippians. And I love Paul. Where he says, I used to trust in my pedigree. I used to trust in my resume. I used to trust in my position. I used to trust in my social standing and everything else. And he goes, but then, man, I realized that that is all ridiculous. Verse 7, what I thought was gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I mean, I look at Paul here and he inspires me every time I read this, literally, every time I read Philippians 3, I am reignited in what my heart toward Christ should be, right? Like, I just want to know him. And it's interesting because I think about all the different things in my life I want to know. I'm going to Google all the time because I want to know things. I want to know who is that actor from Strange Things. And I want to know, you know, like, how, how do I figure this formula? And I want to know about this particular little political fact or whatever else. And yet my chief knowing want should be Christ. And that's what I love about Paul. I look at Paul and I go, you know what? Uh, here's what I, I would say I know about Paul. Uh, that was a dude who prayed, actually believing that Jesus was listening. He prayed, actually believing Jesus was listening. And you ready? He prayed in such a way that he also then waited to hear from Jesus. See, I, I find sometimes in my life, I'm like, uh, Jesus, let me monologue. Amen. 
I'll tell you. Amen. Now I've done my prayer for the day. Right? And, and, and even though I can say, hey, theologically, yeah, of course, Jesus is listening and he's everywhere. And da, da, da. You know, I, I think sometimes I'm just, I, I like to listen to myself. I, I'm not really staying in that place long enough to, to really press in and, and from that be like, man, I've, I've connected. And I've connected in such a way that then I'm saying, uh, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Uh, expose some stuff in my life. Confront me on some things. Uh, draw me into a state of repentance or a state of dependency, whatever. You know, it's like sometimes it's just like, and move on. If I look upon it, I go, that was a dude that prayed, believing Jesus was listening, and waited to hear from him when he prayed. I look at this particular passage and go, man, as Christians, we should celebrate we should celebrate like Jesus is watching us celebrate, right? I mean, I think today, you know, um, as Seahawks fans, we're going to be celebrating. Sorry, Tim, it's going to happen. Um, we're going to celebrate. And Sounders fans celebrate and Red Wolves fans celebrate. And, uh, you know, man, you go to a kid's recital, you celebrate. All kinds of celebration. Man, we should celebrate Jesus more than all of those things. Now, I'm not saying how we celebrate. I'm, you know, like some of you are hand raisers and some of you are hands in the pockets and some of you are, ah, just out. And others are just kind of quiet. I'm talking about this. In, 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 in reverence and in, in awe and impassioned by deeply and personally. That might come out as joy sometimes. That might come out, come out as tears other times. Right? I think sometimes that celebratory thing, when you're in the presence of God, what I find consistently throughout the Bible is when people find themselves before the glory of God, you want to know one of the first things they do? They repent. They acknowledge their sin. There's a brokenness there. It isn't always just like, woo! Right? Sometimes it's just, I'm a, I'm a, a man undone. But, but that's a part of that celebratory thing too. It, it's reflective. Paul was a man that was celebratory, reflective. That's what we should be. I think to really become a person like this that is just in that longing state is to, um, to def- devour things that grow that more. I watch that with my wife. My wife all the time is reading, you know, like, like really sound, impassioned people. Like my wife is like a total John Piper fan. Just, just drinks down John Piper right? Because it's like, he's just always making much of the glory of God, but grounding it in scripture in a deep way. And she just takes that in. And I see in her this thing, this closeness to Jesus that inspires me. I'm like, man, she has a walk with Christ that is alive and real. And it, it kind of, kind of just draws me into want to, to, to imitate what I see uh, as I see her with Christ. And I want to imitate what I see in her because she's imitating Christ in that way. Right? I would say in all of this, what I see about longing is that we should not settle. Don't settle. Don't settle for less than what Jesus offers, right? He offers so much more. And so we establish loyalty, we establish longing, and then third, we establish a love of him love and i mean this in a very particular way i'm going to start in verse 21 i think it'll be verse 22 that comes up on the screen but john chapter 14 
Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So then Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, which is kind of stink to be the other Judas in the clan of 12, right? You know, Judas, not Iscariot, not that dude, all right? Just to be clear, not that guy, all right? He said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him, all right? How do we love him? How do we establish love for Jesus? We obey him. Right? We obey him. Just as we establish our loyalty by we serve him as the master versus money as the master. Just as we establish our longing by just joy, grief, desperation, just a, just a want of him. Here we establish love by saying, all right, what he tells me to do is what I want to do, right? I'm going to start living like Jesus is actually watching I'm going to start doing the things that are hard to tackle. There's plenty of things in our lives that are easy for us to do for Jesus because they're easy. But maybe it means tackling the hard things. Maybe there's some things that we know, I need to stop doing that, and now's the time to stop doing that. Or maybe there's something where you know Jesus is saying, you need to start doing this, and now's the time where you go, all right, Jesus, I know it's going to be hard, but I'm going to start doing whatever it is that he's commanding us to do. And again, my heart behind all of this is, again, what? That we don't settle for average, that we don't settle for routine, that we don't just kind of say, all right, I'll do whatever's predictable, that we don't settle for creed or code or dogma that's divorced from delight, joy, passion, tears, confession, hunger, want, desire, holy discontent. That is to be what we are about. See, I'm certain, I'm certain. Jesus gave himself for his church. Individuals that then cluster into his community, he gave himself for his church so that his church, as individuals and collectively, would experience him in profound ways. And again, the church that I hunger for, for us, would be that place where, as individuals, we experience him. Collectively, we experience him in abundant measure because specifically that is what he offers i'm going to close up here with ephesians chapter three it's paul and he's praying for the church of ephesus and and he's praying for them in such a way that um it's a prayer of promise he's praying through a promise what what jesus has offered to his church what god has offered in jesus to his church And so it starts in verse 14. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. This is what, again, this is what Jesus wants to do. Paul is praying for Jesus to do what Jesus wants to do in the lives of the Ephesians. This should be our prayer. We should be praying this prayer all the time as individuals, certainly as a church. He says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's the presence. 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. I want you to just pay attention to that prayer. Look at the request. It's not a vain request. It's not a request where it's like, oh, I'm going to write something that nobody can ever experience. No, it's legitimate. It's legitimate. He's like, I want you to know the riches of his glory. I want you to know how Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I want you to be rooted and grounded in that love. I want you to know the strength. I want you to be able to comprehend this important, impacting love, right? You're going to know this in such a way that it surpasses your ability to even know. He goes, that's what I pray for you, Ephesians. That is to be the prayer of every one of us here at Redemption. That's what we want. That should be what we want. Again, my, my fear even of my own life is I settle so easily for less because I don't take the time to even pray this prayer on any kind of consistent basis. I just sort of do the religious heavy lifting in my own life at times. And I, I muster obedience because it's the right thing. And I do whatever else because, again, that's what Christians do. And, and again, th- th- this is where the, the stuff is at. Right? Th- th- this is the stuff that God wants to do amongst his people. Imagine if this was true. I mean, imagine. like, just What would a church be like where this verse was clearly experienced? Now, whatever you've imagined, toss it out. Toss it out. Because of verse 20. Now to him was able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Right? I believe that Jesus wants to do far more than we seek him to do. I, I believe Jesus wants to dwell amongst his people in a more profound way than we experience because we don't really seek like we could or should, whether it be with our loyalty or with our longing or with our love. Those three things. In our own individual lives, we kind of do life. Jesus may be extracurricular at times. Right? And then when we come together, church is good. Church is good. Right? But, but, but my heart is that we would, in our daily lives, experience him, pursue him, long for him in such a way that he begins to do even more than we thought possible. Even more. And then we all come together on Sunday, and all of that, the, the parts become a sum that is greater than the parts, more profound than the parts, because it's not us, but according to Paul's continuation, it's according to the power at work within us, right? So it's not us saying, we're going to come and sing in our own strength, but rather we would come and sing in the power and spirit of Christ. It wouldn't be that we're going to serve in our own strength. We're going to serve in the power and strength of Christ. It's not that we're going to give of our own money. No, we're going to give in the power and the spirit and the strength of Christ. All those things. Learn. We're not just going to learn with pencil and paper and just being purely intellectual. No, we're going to learn in the power and strength and presence of Christ. And he's going to do that abundantly. That's that's the goal we shoot for. That's the place that we hunger to be. And we do all of it, verse 21, to him.
To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What would a church look like if this were real? My hope, my prayer for us is that we seek to find out. That we seek to be vertically oriented in such a way that we want more of Jesus. That that we seek to be a place where um, we desire to invest in him as he has invested in us. And that we would fight to reciprocate that investment in the lives of one another and the lives of our community. I really believe that if that becomes more and more the reality for us as a church, um, the reason reason people would want to come and to see is because what they'd want to come and see is God amongst his people, right? Not come and see good production and good programs and good ministries and good events. It's great that we do that. I don't want to take away from that. I don't want anybody to walk out here and go, oh, so Matt doesn't like programmatic things. Now, that's not it at all. I don't trust in programmatic things. We do programmatic things. We do ministries and things and do them well and do them with excellence for the glory of Christ. But, but what we should most long for is the presence of Christ. More than well-polished tools, it would be a well-glorified Christ. And so, my heart, my prayer, is that as time goes on, that we pr- press in and pursue Jesus, and, and from that, as people come in, I, I do, I, I, I hope and pray that it's what happened in the Corinthian church where Paul says, you know, where you want to be is, is a place where when the outsider comes in, they look around and they go, man, God is truly among you. God is truly among you. There's no greater compliment that we could hear than God is truly among you. And so with that, my heart is not Jesus Show me a better paradigm. Show us a new model. Give us a new program. My heart, hopefully your heart, is the same heart as Moses, which is God, show us your glory. Let's pray together. Jesus, I I feel the weight of this particular theme. I feel the weight of it because I feel... A personal frustration in line with it um, that I just settle for too little you know I just sometimes I take easy routes and kind of give you second best and not only does that mean I, I'm, not, I'm not worshiping you to the full potential that I could but but also you know what frankly I, I'm, I'm, I'm robbing myself of something much more deep and I pray for anybody in this room this morning, anybody maybe watching over the next week that says, yeah, I, I settle for less than best too. I, I just kind of get through life and try to make it through things. And I don't really dwell, so I don't really experience. But I, I pray for all of us that we will make those, those life-altering decisions, that self-discipline that says, man, we're, we're just, we're not going to settle. We're not going to settle. We're going we're gonna to be in pursuit. As individuals, we're going to be in pursuit because we want to come together and as a collective body then, sense you dwelling among us in a way that is, again, so powerful, it's undeniable.
that it isn't just, again, creed and code, but it's Christ because of creed and code. And so work amongst your people, work in your people, root out the sin of your people, replenish the strength of your people so that we may know the height, the depth, the breadth, the length of your love and we will know it in a way that surpasses understanding. We love you.